Life Church podcast with Pastor David Singer. All right, let's pray and let's uh, dive into the Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time. We can be in your Word as your people studying, learning how we can please you. And we're so thankful for the gift that you've given in Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, that um, our hearts would grow in love for him today. We would look upon him and treasure him more than anything else in life today. I pray that your spirit would move and lead us to live holy lives filled with discipline and self-control. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, well, we're in our series in the book of Proverbs, and we have been for the last nine weeks. So we're, we're looking at this wise, old, sagely king, King Solomon, and he's passing down wisdom to his son, um, and, and that's the purpose of the book of Solomon. It is wisdom literature. Uh, but we said last week that as we read the Proverbs as Christians, it's important for us to remember a couple of things. First of all, we need to remember to read it through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the good news of what Jesus has done for us, um, and read it along with the rest of the scriptures, especially the New Testament. So we're, we're endeavoring to do that, to see how this, this changes um, and applies to the Christian life. Uh, secondly, we said that it's important that we learn to Uh, not treat these Proverbs as rules or laws or formulas, that if you do this, this automatically happens. So this plus this plus this automatically always equals this. Uh, You get in trouble when you use the Proverbs that way. This is more general wisdom, really solid advice that's applied more broadly to our lives, okay? Um, Now, we also mentioned last week that the the writer of Proverbs, King Solomon, addresses these issues topically, but he doesn't do it one topic after another, he sort of does it ADHD. He jumps around from topic to topic, and so you can't really do this, what we call exegetically, where we just walk through the text line by line. You sort of have to do this topically because there are several main topics that he says, I want my kid to know this. I want my son to have this and to carry this with him. But he he does that scattered throughout the book. So when you read the Proverbs, all 31 of them, you'll get these, these main topics, okay? And so today, we're going to tackle the topic of self-control or discipline. That's what Pastor Bill wanted me to talk to you about, and and I'm excited about doing that today. Now, um, we're going to be doing it a little bit different from last week. Last week, we we started in the New Testament, in the book of James, because we were talking about the tongue, and we kind of backed our way into the Proverbs to see what the Proverbs say about how Christians or how God's people ought to be using their words, Okay. Today we're going to be looking at it a little bit different. We're going to start in the wisdom of the Proverbs, looking at this king, dealing with his son on the issue of self-control, and then we're going to jump over to the New Testament and look at another father, a spiritual father, the Apostle Paul, and he's talking to his spiritual son in the faith, Titus, about self-control. Okay, so we're going to compare the two accounts, and I want you to notice three big things. All right, I want you to notice, first of all, the need for self-control. We all need it desperately, um, and that will become abundantly apparent. Secondly, I want you to notice that we have a trainer in self-control, uh, something, something that really trains us, that helps us move in this direction of being self-controlled people. And finally, I want us to notice the power, the, the, the power source for Christian self-control. There is a, a real power source, a place we go to get self-control that is outside of ourselves. Okay, so let's begin with the need, the need for self-control. And I don't think we need to say uh, a ton about this up front, but... Uh, every culture in the world, every civilization in the world has highlighted the need for self-control. And still today, uh, if you 
Uh, if you talk to anyone, I think they would agree that it's important for every person, if they're going to live in civilization, to have some level of self-control. All right? If you don't have any self-control at all, you have to be locked up or executed. That's just the way it is. Um, so this is a valuable thing for culture and society, not just for Christians. Um, but King Solomon addresses several main topics with his son that we're going to look at. Um, and I'd like to look at how the New Testament also addresses them alongside of it. And the first topic that we'll look at is the issue of money. All right? He's saying, son, it's important that you have self-control and discipline in this issue of money. Now, there's many different scriptures for each of these. I'm just going to use one um, a piece, and then you can go ahead and look at all the other ones in the Proverbs. But one of my favorites is Proverbs 13, verse 11, which says, picture this wise king sitting his son down saying, son, wealth gained hastily will dwindle. But whoever gathers little by little will increase it. Hear the self-control in there? Don't go after this big get-rich-quick scheme. Don't do that. I've done that, by the way, before, several Internet businesses later. I realized that's not a good idea. Okay? Um, you just, here's how you do it. You, you just have self-discipline and self-control, and you, little by little you save your money and you invest wisely, and, and that's, that's the path. But the Proverbs also tell us to uh, give to the poor. It says, he who gives to the poor lends to the Lord. It tells us to glorify God with our money. And so we get to the New Testament, and, and it's very similar. Um, but in the New Testament, after Jesus has come and given his life and purchased us with his blood, we see kind of the big overarching principle with money that you are a steward of God's money. That's how Jesus talks about it over and over and over again, that we are managers and stewards. It doesn't belong to us. Okay, so the New Testament doesn't talk about your money. It talks about God's money that you're managing for him. All right? Um, so that's why the tithe, you know, for us, we, we talk about you are managing all of God's money. And so he can always tell you what to do with his money because he owns it. He's the Lord. Once Jesus is the Lord of your life, he owns your time. He owns your energy. He owns all of your days. And he owns your money. He owns everything. Everything belongs to the Lord. And so that's how it changes just a little bit in the New Testament. But you can see how this takes a great deal of self-control. If you have a whole bunch of money and the Lord, Jesus, tells you to give it away, you have to be disciplined to do it. That's what's so scary for me about money, honestly. That if the Lord Jesus told me, give it all away, I'm the Lord. Remember, it's mine. I would say, yeah, but, but it's mine. Right? It, you know, it, it's, it's that wrestling thing of holding on to it, not wanting to let it go. This is where it takes self-control and discipline to be a Christian as regards to money because you have to hold it loosely. You manage it diligently, but you hold it loosely. You manage it and you, and you steward it wisely, but you let it go when the Lord says, let it go. Give it. Invest here. And, you, and you're constantly saying, Lord, would you like your money invested here? Would you like it here? Would you like it put here? Should I give it to this? That's the way New Testament Christians handle money. And that's why it takes so much self-control. We need it. Uh, secondly, the issue of drinking, uh, specifically alcohol and strong drink. We're not talking about orange juice here or Mountain Dew. We're talking about wine and strong drink. Proverbs chapter 21, 20, verse 1 says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. The New Testament, in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, says, Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so we're constantly encouraged in the scriptures that you must use self-control as regarding alcoholic drinks. 
Now, I'm not one of those guys that believes that Jesus made wine at Cana that was non-alcoholic and that any alcohol at all is a sin. I know there's a crowd out there that believes that, and I respect them. I respect them a lot. Um, But I just think, biblically, I just can't come to the place that says, for a Christian, having a drink is a sin. Now, I think that it's important that all of us hear this wise teacher, this wise king, and say, is it beneficial for Christians to drink? Is it wise for us to drink? And especially in certain circumstances around us. Think for a moment about this community right here in Pettigrew Heights. I wonder how many of the major problems and fallouts in families are happening surrounding alcohol. I just wonder about it. One in 12 people that tries it gets addicted. Many of you sitting here today have families that are shattered by it. And yet, it seems like in evangelical Christianity, we've sort of swung the pendulum over. It used to be, you know, we were, we were, drinking was one of the main things you were never, ever supposed to do, along with dancing and some other things. But now, it's like lots of Christians are posting their favorite drinks on Facebook, and they're out with their friends and all this kind of stuff, and I'm just like, ah, we've got to be careful. We've got to be careful. I'm not saying, and I, I invite conversation about this. Let's talk about it. As the church, as God's people, we need to be talking about this. This is a destructive thing in our culture, an extremely powerful thing in our culture. Um, I spent several years as a youth pastor. I have one of my youth pastor friends here with me in church, Jamie. And, and um, I'm sure Jamie could attest to this as well, but I attended funerals. I, I saw kids in caskets because of this stuff. So you've got to hear when this wise, sagely king says this, he's not just blowing smoke. You know, when the Apostle Paul says this, he's not just blowing smoke. You've got you to think about, who am I influencing? Who's watching me? What am I speaking to them? So as a youth pastor, I said, no alcohol for me. It's not because the Bible says it's an absolute sin. It doesn't forbid it for me. But I can just go without it. I'd rather have a Coke and a Snickers. It'd be great. You know, that's a good drink. That's a great snack. I don't need a beer. And if I, if I, can, if I don't have to risk saying something to a 14-year-old kid that doesn't have the discipline that I do, then I'm going to go with that plan. So maybe you need to think more about this. This is not an issue of sin. It's an issue of wisdom, in my opinion. Now, obviously, if you're getting drunk, that's an issue of sin. We don't have to... But, you know, my father-in-law even challenged me on that. He was a policeman, and he said, a lot of the people he arrested had, had a couple of beers, thought they were a long ways away from the limit, and they blew over the limit. So how do you know when you're over the limit? There's another thing. Okay, so... This is something for us to think hard about as Christians. Don't just gloss over this thing. We need self-discipline when it comes to drinking. Additionally, we need it when it comes to eating. This is more of my thing. Uh, Proverbs chapter 23, verse 20 through 21. Be not among drunkards or among gluttonous eaters of meat, for the drunkard and the glutton will come to poverty, and slumber will clothe them with rags. The New Testament says, in the New Testament, Paul describes a people whose God is their belly. Okay, that's a glutton. Someone who's just ruled by their appetite for food. Um, Frederick Buechner, he, he described gluttons like this. He said, a glutton is one who raids the icebox as a cure for spiritual malnutrition. Right? So, I'm depressed. How about a few Cinnabons? I, I got lots of anxiety. Half a dozen cookies should take care of that. You know? I think my girlfriend or boyfriend might break up with me. You know, some dominoes is an easy call. That, that's what it's saying. You just, instead of going to God and saying, God, I need you. I've got lots of anxiety. I've got lots of worries. I'm stressed out. 
We just go and get our fix from the fridge. That's what he's talking about here. We have to have self-control. We have to use food as the gift that it is. It's a great, wonderful, beautiful, amazing gift. I can go on and on about all the foods I love. It's a treasure. It's an awesome gift. But used wrongly, uh, this can lead to destruction in your life. And so the Proverbs and the New Testament warn us against it. Additionally, in the area of work, sleep, and laziness, there's a myriad of Proverbs about this. Uh, My favorite is this one, Proverbs 6, verse 6. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Now, when the king says, here's what you need to do. You need to go watch some ants for a while. You know you have a problem with laziness. Because those ants, you better believe, are busy all the time. And they're tackling projects twice the size of them. You know, and this is something that people in my generation in particular really struggle with because we didn't get raised in farm communities where we, where we developed really healthy work ethics. We were raised in cities. We played a lot of sports and a lot of video games, unfortunately. So we really battle working hard. We want jobs that pay a ton, that give us lots of praise for like about 25 to 30 hours a week. I mean, really, that's our dream scenario, okay? Um, whereas our parents and grandparents, they were used to work in 50, 60 sometimes 70 hours a week, working six days, resting one day. That's what the Bible lays out. And, and they were just fine with that. They enjoyed work in a lot of circumstances. The New Testament, 2 Thessalonians verse, chapter 3, verse 10 says, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, if you're disabled, this doesn't apply to you. Okay, don't hear me wrong here. But if anyone is not willing to work, you're able-bodied and you can work, and you won't work, Paul says, shouldn't eat shouldn't eat. Oh, come on, Paul, Mr. Grace. It's like, you're not eating. Not at my house. I've been sitting around all day. It's the truth. We have to have self-discipline. We have to, Christians should be diligent, hard workers. Let me tell you something. You should be the best worker at your job. As a Christian, you should be the best, hardest, most diligent worker at your job. Give God glory first by how you do your work. That's what the Proverbs would tell you, and that's what the New Testament would tell you as well. Um, Additionally, sexuality. Now, praise the Lord, Pastor Bill already covered this um, a couple weeks ago when he talked about adultery. But in general, both the Proverbs and the New Testament tell Christians that they have got to be self-controlled when it comes to their sexuality because the Bible is extremely narrow when it comes to sexuality. You might have noticed that. You might have taken some criticism for it. And C.S. Lewis says, here's the deal. Either the Bible is wrong and God is not real, or our sexual drives are wrong, and they need to be corralled and controlled and channeled into this narrow category called healthy biblical sexuality, which is between one man and one woman in a thing called marriage, a covenant called marriage. Okay? So C.S. Lewis says, you know, we have all kinds of sexual desires, and people in here have sexual desires that are across the board, from heterosexual desires with numerous partners to bisexual desires with other people to homosexual desires. And the Bible says you take all those sexual desires and they're bent and broken because of sin, and you need to channel them and have self-control down into one category. And Lewis says either the Bible is wrong, because it just can't, it's very narrow, isn't it? It's very narrow-minded. Or our sexual drives are broken and distorted. And that's what I think. I think our sexual drives are broken, and that's why we need self-control. Additionally, we need self-control when it comes to anger. Proverbs chapter 14, verse 29 says, whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, 
but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. And in the New Testament, Ephesians 4, verse 26, says, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. Hear all the self-control in there? Be angry, but do not sin. Some of you have such a short fuse, you can't possibly get angry without sinning a whole bunch. You just sin right away once you get angry. The Bible says you need to be angry, but not sin. So anger is not the sin. Some of you are sinning because you never, ever get angry. Let me tell you something. If you can watch that documentary that Matt and Rachel showed on sex trafficking last week and not get angry, that's a sin. That's something that shreds the heart of God, that this is going on with girls and women across the world, that they're being treated as animals. That should anger you. It should boil up something in you that makes you want to do something. But don't sin. You be angry, but don't sin. It takes incredible self-control. We need self-control as Christians because we actually have to be angry and not sin. And that's hard to do. It's really easy to be angry and sin. It's kind of easy to say, I'm not going to get angry about anything. I'm just going to sort of mentally check out of everything. But it's hard. It takes discipline to be angry and not sin. And, of course, last week we covered the topic of speech, so enough said there. Um, I think if you could sum up what the Proverbs say about discipline and self-control, a couple good passages are Proverbs 12, verse 1, which says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. You know, as kids... We were taught, don't ever call anyone stupid, right? Turns out the Bible says that's not true. You can call people stupid if they're stupid. And if they hate reproof, they're actually stupid. That's just what the Bible says. I didn't write it. I'm just telling you what it says. Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28 says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. What's a city without walls? It's defenseless. It's going to come to ruin in no time because it, 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 is, it has no defense systems. It has, it has nothing to keep it from, be, from being attacked. And so a man without self-discipline is coming to ruin and coming to ruin fast. So what is clear from the Proverbs and from the New Testament is we need, we need, we need self-control and self-discipline. We have got to have this. But what's missing from all these Proverbs, and you might have noticed, is Okay, how do we get that? How do we get this kind of self-control that we so desperately need in our lives? Some of you are asking, boy, I've got a few things I could really use self-control in. Yep, I checked off a couple of those things on your list, but how do I get it? Great, I know I need it, but how do I get it? And if you're like me, you've struggled with a few things that have been harder to, you know, a lot harder to actually do than to just say, yeah, I know I need that. Saying I need that is one thing, but actually carrying out the, the action and Getting it is another thing. So that's why we're going to the New Testament here to see how we can get this self-control we so desperately need. Now, I think it's also important to realize before we go there that there is a kind of self-control that you can get that's not biblical. Okay? Um, there is actually a counterfeit kind of self-control. And Pastor Timothy Keller talks about this. He makes this abundantly clear that this kind of counterfeit self-control is out there, and, and we need to watch out for it. Uh, and I think his definition is helpful here. First of all, he defines self-control as the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. All right, so think of self-control, Christian self-control, as the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. All right, and he says this, it comes from the Greek word ekritia, 
and says this is the opposite of a driven, impulsive, uncontrolled person. Now, this is, this is key because he says the counterfeit of this is what? It's willpower through pride and other functional idols. Now, what do I mean by that? Why is willpower the counterfeit to true self-control, biblical self-control? Well, let's step back a couple thousand years, and I'll give you a good example. Um, You'll see when you look at human history that King Solomon is not the first one to promote the virtue of self-control. Actually, history will tell us that civilizations throughout history have, have valued this as one of the chief virtues, but none perhaps more highly than the ancient Greeks. Um, And among the schools of thought in the ancient Greeks, the the ones that elevated self-control above every other virtue were the Stoics. And you might hear, boy, you people are so Stoic. It just means you're sort of unemotional, sort of cold and and a bit, um, you know, straight-faced. Well, that's, you get your name from uh, the Stoics, this group of of Greeks. And, And they taught that if a man could master himself, if he could become the master of himself, if by sheer willpower... He could gain control over his, remote, over his emotions and responses. He could be perfectly and completely free. You know, every culture is teaching people how they can be free and have life. And the Stoics said, this is it. You need to gain absolute perfect self-control. You need to, by sheer willpower, grab a hold of yourself and not let anything touch you. Emotionally, you have to have complete and perfect control of your responses. Um, this person would be unmoved by anything that happened to him. So the Greek understanding is you, you grab in on, inside yourself to, uh, and, and take hold of something deep inside yourself and say, okay, now I'm just going to hold on and sort of shell up and not let anything affect me. In essence, you're, you're becoming a stone. All right? And C.S. Lewis actually said this is what would happen to someone um, like this. I'm going to adjust this quick. There we go. C.S. Lewis said that uh, love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. Stoics, turns out they're right. If you just harden up, uh, you'll be fine. He says if you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, Motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, what Lewis is saying there is is true because the Stoics did that. They locked their hearts away. They said nothing can can affect us, and that's what they heralded as self-control. That was their chief virtue. Now, this idea of self-control is actually still around today. Um, this is by no means vanished. You hear things like, buck up. You know, uh, get a hold of yourself. Uh, keep a stiff upper lip. Stop sniffling. Grown men don't cry. These kinds of things come right out of stoicism. Come right out of stoicism. They, they just, they're just an attempt at self-control by reaching down, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, and gaining control. It's important to realize as we go into the New Testament here, When Paul's talking to his son in the faith, Titus, this is not the kind of self-control he's referring to. He's referring to that definition of of self-control that we read a little bit earlier, that it's the ability to choose the important thing over the urgent thing. That's what he's pushing us towards. And Paul knew a thing or two about helping people with self-control. Just read the book of 1 Corinthians. Got a whole bunch of wild, crazy Christians that he's like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with you all? 
and, and he's writing letters to them, trying to help them. So let's go to Titus, and we're going to finish here in Titus chapter 2, verse 11 through 14, and we're going to see our trainer in self-control and our power to get it. Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14, this is in the ESB, it says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, so first of all, our trainer. Notice here that there is a trainer. How many of you have ever had a trainer for something? Ever, ever tried this? You got so, maybe you got so aggressive one January that you said, I'm going to get in shape and I, I'm going to be really serious about it. I'm going to get a trainer. And if we're really honest, why do we get trainers? It's because we lack self-control and discipline. Right? Some of you might say, well, no, I didn't know how to use the machines. I get that a little bit, but they're pretty self-explanatory and there is YouTube. So I don't get that entirely. Okay? Really why we get trainers it's because we lack self-control. We need somebody in our face saying, 10 more reps. Come on, you can do this one more mile. Keep going, keep going. Don't you dare give up. You've got a lot further to go. You can do it. And, and when normally we just would lack the self-control and say, that's good. That's good enough. You know? That's good. I think I'll quit there. And we don't get the true value out of our workout that way. Well, Paul is saying there's something in the Christian life that trains us to say no to ungodliness and to live with self-control. So he says there, This trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in this present age. So what is this trainer? What's this trainer? Well, he says it. It's grace. For the grace of God has appeared. This grace brings salvation, and it trains us to be self-controlled, to live upright lives. Grace of God. So he's saying the grace of God, which the word grace just means gift. The gift of God has appeared. It brings salvation and it trains us to live self-controlled lives. What is that gift? It's Jesus Christ. God gave us this gift. We sang about it this morning. He, he gave us this gift who came to earth, lived the perfect life, died the death that was meant for us, rose again from the dead to conquer death and sin for us, and he gifts us our salvation. He gifts us. That's what makes Christianity different than any other religion. Our salvation is a gift. He gave it to us. He didn't have to do anything. He just said, here you go. It's a gift. Here, here, I live perfect righteousness. Your complete sinfulness. Here you go. Here's perfect righteousness. It's a gift. Oh, thank you, Jesus. You mean I don't have to do anything? No, it's a gift. That's why we, we're, so, we're always talking about grace this and grace that, and grace is everywhere. It just means gift. Everything in our lives as Christians is about a gift. That's why at Christmas we wrap up tons of boxes and give them to each other because God gave us the greatest gift ever, his son, to take our place, to redeem us, to, to rescue us, to bring us back to him. And so Paul says here that this gift of Jesus Christ trains us. It actually trains us. It doesn't just save us. It brings us salvation, but it also trains us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright lives. Now, how does it do that? You might be asking yourself that question. How in the world would grace be a good trainer? 
Actually, I think it would be the opposite. I mean, think about it. You've heard people say this from time to time. Well, God's going to forgive me anyway, right? So I can just do it. I can just commit that sin. God will forgive me anyway. So there's grace, you know? I mean, the Apostle Paul even asked this question rhetorically. He says, should we keep going on sinning that grace might abound? Should we just sin it up so that we'll get a whole bunch more grace? He answers that question. He says, certainly not. Certainly not. That's not what we're going to do with the grace. And that's not what true grace trains us to do. Let me tell you something, friends. If you're in here today and you say, okay, when I see this gift that God gave me, this grace, that he did not withhold his only son but gave him up for us all, when I look at that and I look at what it cost God to love me, that he gave his only son, and I say, man, look at how he suffered and died and rose again for me, and look at all that, that incredible work that he did for me, and I say, that makes me want to sin a whole lot because now I don't have to worry about it. He took care of it. If it makes you do that, you're not a Christian. You're just simply not a Christian. No offense or anything, but you're not a Christian. If the grace of God, the gift that he's given you, makes you think, oh, well, now I've got a license to sin, that just means you didn't get it. It means you didn't get it. You don't understand it yet. You need to cry out to God and say, save me. I didn't get it the first time. I need to, you need to hear the gospel again. And, and once you understand what God has really done for you, grace is going to do two things. Okay, first thing it's going to do is grace. This is how it trains you. Okay, grace is your trainer to, to help you become self-controlled. And this is how it trains you. First thing it does is it sets you free from the law. Now, this is a huge concept in the book of Romans, and we don't have time to go into it too deep. But the law is called our school teacher. So what it says is, here you go. You don't measure up here, 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 or here. And you say, great, I'm a complete failure. I'm a sinner. I can't do anything. That, that's not good news at all. You're right. It's called the law. And Paul says the law condemns us. The law condemns us. What the law can't do is give you the ability to resist sin. Um, Romans 8 says what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by our sinful nature, God did in sending his own son in the likeness of sinful man. So God had to do what we couldn't do because what the law couldn't do, the law couldn't make us righteous, it couldn't make us want to live self-control. So God had to do it. So grace comes to us, this gift of God comes to us and says, I'm going to set you free from the law. What the law actually does is it makes the problem worse. Um, I call this red buttonology, or the principle of the red button. Um, how many of you, when someone tells you, don't do that, you just want to do it so bad? You know, it's like, I, I see this with my kids all the time. I'm like, I should have never told them not to do that. Because now they just, whoa, now they want to do it so bad, it's like overtaking them. And I can just see it itching in, under their skin. And I'm like, all right, go ahead and do it. Because you're going to do it anyway. Don't spray your sister with the hose. Oh, there it goes. Uh, don't do that. You know, it just, it's just like if you, if you, the law has that effect on us. It's, and I call it the principle of the red button because when I was a kid, I was out on the farm a lot, and my grandpa would say, whatever you do, don't press the red button. And I'd say, what could be easier than not pressing the red button? I have all this fun stuff to do out on the farm and you know, go try to catch some toads or go try to play with the cats or whatever. Or, or just go throw stuff at the cows. There's lots of stuff to do. I don't, need to, I don't need to press the red button. What do I need to press the red button for? But now I kind of find myself thinking about the red button and like, boy, I wonder why Grandpa would say don't press the red button. I mean, it's pretty cool. It's a red button and it's big and beautiful and red. And, and what if I just 
look at it for a while. Maybe I'll figure out what it does. And I won't actually have to press it. Maybe I could touch it without pressing it. And you, and you just kind of keep going on. That's what the law does to us. It makes it so we want to sin more. Paul says, I wouldn't have known what covetousness was until the law told me. And then I found myself coveting a whole bunch. That's how it works. So grace comes along and says, here, you couldn't fulfill the law, so I did it for you. It's a gift. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law for us. It's a gift. Your righteousness is a gift. So now there's no red button. There's no law telling you, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. It's now you live under grace and the power of the Spirit. It sets you free to actually not sin. That's what grace does. That's how it trains you for godliness. Now, the second thing it does is it produces a paradoxical obedience in you. Um, When you see this incredible thing that God did for you in Christ, that he gave his only son, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, and you look at that and you behold that and you say, you've got to be kidding. For me, there was nothing that I did to deserve this. I I was condemned. I was destined for hell and destruction. And you gave your son for me? You look on that and you say, I'll do anything for you. I'll do anything for you. You did what I could not do. I was supposed to be punished, but God took my punishment for me. You did everything. I could do nothing. I'll do whatever. I'll do whatever out of gratitude and thankfulness to you for doing everything that I could not do. I'll do anything you want. Grace produces a paradoxical obedience. Sure, you could disobey and God would forgive you, but you don't want to now. You don't want to now. It's like if you have a really good dad. Some of you had horrible dads. I'm really sorry. But if you have a really good dad, you know your dad loves you, you know there's nothing, literally nothing you could do to like make him disown you. Okay? You could do anything and he would still say, you know what, that really hurts me, but I love you. Now, with that kind of a dad, are you going to want to say, look, I'm going to take a baseball bat to his car. I'm going to cause a lot of problems in his life. I'm going to make things terrible for him because he's such a good dad and I can do it. No. You say, I love dad. I don't want to screw it up. I don't want to, I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to rip out his heart. I love dad. I want to be good to him. I want to obey him. That's what grace does. It produces in us a paradoxical obedience. We don't have to obey now, but we do because we want to. All right? It's like the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her hair. I always think that's a crazy cool story. This woman that Jesus has forgiven of all of her sin. She lived this really sinful life, like all of us have. And she goes to Jesus, and she, she's crying and weeping and washing his feet with her hair. And they're like, this, look at this sinful woman. Jesus, why do you hang out? And he says, Look, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. I just think we need to get down on our knees and cry a little bit over Jesus' feet. And even if we don't have that much hair, we wash Jesus' feet with our hair and and we just say, Jesus, thank you so much for everything you did for me because I couldn't do it myself. That's what grace does. And she's there in that posture. She's saying, I'll follow you wherever. I'll do anything for you. That's what grace does produces a paradoxical obedience in us. It trains us to self-control. It says, hey, you're not under the law anymore. Look at Jesus. Look at the one who gave you everything. Look at the gift. Look at the giver. It trains you, and then you say, yeah, I'm not going to do that. I don't have to. I'm not under the law anymore. I'm, I'm free. Jesus set me free from sin. I love him. I don't want to hurt him. I don't want to abuse that grace. Okay? So that's how grace trains us for self-control. And thirdly, our source of power for Christian self-control Christians don't get self-control like the Stoics do. 
just reaching inside and grabbing a hold of that inner self and sort of hanging on and shelling yourself off to anything that can, that can affect you. We don't get self-control like that. Our self-control comes from a power far greater than anything we could ever imagine that is outside of us. That's where we get self-control. Look at verse 13 and 14. It says, We're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us, number one, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and number two, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. All right. So our power source, it comes from Jesus Christ himself, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul said that Jesus did not just give himself to save us, to redeem us, but he also gave himself to purify us and to make us his own possession. Like he wanted you. And he wanted to change you. You know? Um, Put another way, Jesus didn't say, change, and then I'll save you. He said, I'm going to save you, and then I'm going to change you. All right? It works the other way around. That's why we say to people, come as you are. Jesus takes you as you are. You bet he does, but he never leaves you as you are. He always changes you. He saves you to change you. He has a plan for you, and that's to make you like him. So he saves you to change you, to purify you, to make you his own possession, to make you a people zealous for good works. That's what he's doing. Jesus Christ himself is the power source for your self-control, and there could be no greater power. Here's how it works. There's one man, this man, Jesus Christ, who was God and fully man. We brush over that sometimes, but he was fully man, completely fully man like we are, tempted like we are, struggled with things like we, like we do, uh, as a human, he suffered like we do, but he never, ever once sinned. And can you imagine that? He lived a perfectly self-controlled life, perfectly dil- diligent life, one man. And then he died on the cross in your place for your sins, rose again from the dead, busting the chains of sin and death for you. That's what he did. And then Augustine said, after that, after the resurrection of Jesus, it became passe non peccare, possible not to sin. Whereas before, it was not possible not to sin. But now he busted the chains of sin and death to give you the power not to sin anymore. And on top of that, that very same spirit that existed in Jesus Christ that that gave him that ability to live the one perfect life that's ever happened, the one perfectly self-controlled life, he, when you put your faith and trust in him, gives you that Holy Spirit. He charges you with it. He fills you with it as this power source to live out this self-controlled life. Galatians 5, we see that the fruit of this Spirit that Jesus fills us with is love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Self-control. This Holy Spirit that Jesus gives you is a sin-killing, fruit-producing machine. He's like a general contractor. He gets in, he's like, this place is a dump. This has got to go, and this has got to come in, and he's rebuilding things, and he's getting things out, and he's like, get that stuff out of there. That's garbage. Get this stuff in here. And he's building this stuff, and he's like, this needs to look more like Jesus. And he's arranging things just the way he wants them to. And that's what the Holy Spirit is doing from the moment he enters you. It's called sanctification. He's making you new. He's making you like Jesus. And this is why James and Paul can say, a tree is known, or James and, and Jesus and Paul, a tree is known by its fruit. Because as a Christian, you should produce fruit. You have a fruit-producing machine in you. 
you will produce fruit as a Christian. So if you've been a Christian for a while and, and you're sitting here today and you're saying, boy, there's no fruit in my life, you need to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Have I really surrendered my life to Christ? Have I really, have I, has he really saved me and filled me with the Holy Spirit? And he will do that. Cry out to him. He will save you and fill you with this Holy Spirit. And then as you go along, with grace as your trainer, saying, no, 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 you're not under the law. Keep your eyes on the gift. Keep your eyes on him. You will grow in the fruit of the Holy Spirit together. And part of that fruit is self-control. Now, I'm at the end of my sermon here. I know some of you are like, okay, where's the five things? Where's the five little helpful steps to get self-control? And here's the thing. This is Christianity. There are no five steps. It's about him. See, if I gave you five little things you could do now, then it would be the antithesis to the rest of my sermon. Um, This is about him and what he is doing in you. It is not about you being a stoic and grabbing hold of something and just gritting your teeth and having self-control through willpower. This is about supernatural power. God change, not you changing yourself. It's not self-help. It's God's help. You you follow me? So, So here's what you do. If there's one thing you can do, a a tree bears fruit very naturally when it keeps its roots in good soil. You don't have to tell a tree, hey, why don't you amp up the fruit production here? It just happens naturally. And so as you keep your roots grounded in your power source, Jesus Christ, in the word, in prayer, fasting, and doing some of the disciplines, solitude, all those things are designed to just connect you and keep you rooted and grounded in him who is your power source, then you will change. And trust me, some of you have been frustrated with your level of change, but I've seen you change in the last year. I've seen you grow. Now, this is the other thing about growth, and that's why I think Paul uses a botanical metaphor here, a tree, because how many of you have seen fruit spring up overnight? I never have. My apple tree blooms every April, May, if there's a nice storm, and then I get fruit every August, September, somewhere around in there. It takes a while. You can't even see the growth happening day to day, but it just happens very slowly, very gradually. And some of you need to be encouraged here. You're growing. The Holy Spirit is doing this. You're growing in these virtues, but you need to be patient. It takes time. My prayer is for you, friends, that like a good tree, you would stay rooted in your source, in the source for your self-control, Jesus Christ, and that you would grow mighty in him. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus and this incredible gift that you gave. You didn't have to do it, but you did it because of your great love and your compassion for us. We thank you that that gift sets us free from the law, that you've accomplished everything that we could not. And we thank you that that gift encourages us towards a self-controlled life. It leads us, it trains us to live a self-controlled life. Lord, we we ask for your Holy Spirit to continue his good work of sanctification in our hearts, to clean us up, to make us more like Jesus, to root out the vices, to bring in the virtues, to do his thing in us to the greatest degree, Lord, so we can bring you the most glory uh, that, that that is possible. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray.